Hello and welcome to The Place to Be, a Seinfeld podcast. I'm your host, Adam. And I'm Eric. Today we welcome Jennifer Armstrong. Jennifer is the author of the book Seinfeldia, How a Show About Nothing Changed Everything. And we're so excited to talk to her today. Thank you for being with us, Jennifer. Sure, thanks for having me. So before we discuss the book, we just wanted to ask you, when did you first decide you wanted to become a writer? Oh my goodness, um, forever. That's always what <laughs> I'm gonna do. I, mean, I was a, When I was a kid, I used to like write plays that I made all my friends be in in my garage. And like, I was just, that was always um, kind of the plan. I had detours along the way, but basically, you know, I've been doing it since I could, essentially. Did you know you always wanted to write about pop culture? No, no. That's purely like, I, I feel like this is actually true of a lot of professional writers that like you have a lot of, you would do a number of different things, but then one of them kind of sticks and people give you money for it or whatever. Um, you know, and certainly that I wouldn't have been surprised to learn that that's what I was going to do. But like, you know, I, I think like most people who want to be writers and their kids, like I thought I was going to be a novelist or something like that. Or like I said, I was, you know, writing plays for my garage, which also makes sense because, right, I'm, it's kind of just like now I write about people who write plays for their garage, but for millions of dollars instead, right? So, you know, that's, that's what they're doing on Seinfeld. Um, they just recorded it and made billions doing it. So I know you wrote a book about Mary Tyler Moore and you wrote about a couple of other shows. Uh, what made you decide to write this book about Seinfeld? It was, I mean, it, it is honestly partly like a collaboration with my publisher. We're always sort of like, you know, talking about there's, I have a lot of ideas that they're like, that is not popular. Let's not do that. Um, you know, they have ideas where I'm like, nah. So this really was one we settled on together. But, um, you know, I just, if you're going to write books like I do, which I always say they're kind of like biographies of TV shows, I just can't think of a better show to do it's like at some point it, it would have to be done right someone should write a book about Seinfeld so <laughs> why not me and um you know it, it paid off it was a really that was a good decision but I'm always looking for both kind of like a show that really has a story not just one that, that this this had both this had a, a lot of great stories behind it and you know, was incredibly popular. And that is part of the story is like, why does everyone love this thing so much? And I did really want to know the answer to that. I mean, I knew the answer. I knew why I loved it, but just kind of investigating like that phenomenon of like so many people loving it and continuing to love it. Like what makes it so special? And what a way to be known in the Seinfeld world, uh, writing this book. It's just amazing. Like now your name is just ensconced. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's true. It's true. And it's not totally something I thought about like going into it, but it's very true that with these books that I've written, you know, these shows that I've written books about, um, you do become really like, it's a community, right? And especially that's, it's literally why I called the book Seinfeldia, right? It's about that community. I am still friendly with Peter Melman, who is a writer for the show. And, um, a couple of the others who are writers for the show. And certainly it's like, hanging out with the soup Nazi or, you know, the real Kramer love, love Kenny Kramer. Like it's, <laughs> it is, it's, it's its own little community and it's not something I thought about going into it, but it's really fun to be part of that. 
Yeah, so speaking of that, for those who don't know, what is Seinfeldia? Well, the, my idea for the, the kind of concept was just that as I was researching and writing it, I was really like kind of starting to see exactly what I was talking about just now. Like this feeling of like there's a place, you know, it's a mythical, it's a state of mind mostly, but like there's a dimension, I guess, where Seinfeld kind of lives on forever. It's like Jerry Seinfeld has aged. He's become a dad. He's, you know, like he goes on with his life, but it, you know, this one idea of him and all the things that surrounded him in this world continue to live on. So, you know, Larry Thomas can still make his living saying no soup for you. The guy who played the soup Nazi. That's right. what always gets me right. Is that this guy, you know, went to an audition one day as a character actor thought like, Oh, it's cool. I booked this, you know, really popular show. He's on one episode. He ends up spend, you know, spending the next several decades of his life actually playing this character essentially because people loved it so much. And that's fascinating to me. It's so incredible. Yeah. And Seinfeld is so well covered and the diehard fans know so much about it. So what was the challenge in trying to find new stories and trivia facts that fans had never heard of before? That was the challenge. I was terrified. Um, I'm not, and I'm telling you, I actually was just talking about this recently that I actually even like fought with my, not fought, like it sounds really intense, but like I had discussions with my editors about this because, you know, they didn't, they were not as ensconced in the world of Seinfeldia as I was at the time. And so like, they were like, why don't you just start the book with, you know, Larry and Jerry at the deli coming up with the idea of Seinfeld. And I was like, cause they will close the book. And be like, this is nothing new. Thank you very much. Um, I was really, it's like that obviously has to be in there. You're not going to skip the stuff people know, but I was like, you need to understand these fans are intense and they are, they know a lot and they're not going to be impressed with, and you know, to the editors, it's a brand new information. Like they're like amazing story. And I'm like, it is, but everyone's heard the deli story and the like, oh, we're at the Korean deli and we're talking about the stuff and this is how we come up with, oh, it should, this show should just be two guys talking. It's like <laughs> a story, but, you know, it can't be the opener or people are going to just close the book again. And I actually ended up starting the book with the fans and, you know, with a, with a scene at the Seinfeld night, the Brooklyn Cyclones had, I was actually the first one. And um, to me, that's, indicative of the spirit of the book first of all like I was talking about that everyone would come out to this event and it's all these Seinfeldian references that everyone gets because they're there that's the whole point of being there together and um, to me that's both interesting and also shows it's more like let's reflect the fans back to them in the beginning and then tell the story from there of like why are these people still obsessed with the show decades after it was on why are they still dressing in puffy shirts and having junior mint tossing contests <laughs> and all of these things. And even though the, the game was like one of the worst baseball games I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> we're all there for the entire thing because they wanted to be part of the Seinfeld part of it. And to me, that's what was so exciting. So, you know, I really wanted to tell not just the stuff everybody knew, but new stories from the writers, of course, first of all, and then also telling that bigger story of like, why does this, how did it keep existing? How did it grow actually? I mean, Seinfeld himself said once something like the real story of this show is syndication. 
And I really took that to heart. And that was actually where the, that's actually how I started this idea of like the Seinfeldia part is that I was like, huh. And at first I thought it's impossible. You can't tell the story of syndication. That's the most boring sounding story you've ever heard. But the story is about how more and more and more people became fans because they were watching it in reruns and they could talk to each other with, you know, the Seinfeldia jargon and, you know, have inside references together and that multiple generations over time end up being Seinfeld fans. That's the story of syndication. It's also the story of how Jerry got so rich. But, <laughs> right, yeah. um, so it's his favorite story. But, you know, that was that was sort of what I was thinking is like, oh, that's such an interesting challenge. And that was my answer to that is like, let's tell the story of the fandom and how, you know, in that final chapter, I have kind of the crazy offshoots of the fandom, like Seinfeld 2000 is my favorite of all time, personally. Um, (laughs) But like, so a guy who spends a lot of his time still to this day has spent years of his life pretending to be a deranged fan on Twitter who won't show up about why isn't Seinfeld still on today, right? Or, um, you know, the street artist, uh, Jay Shells, who recreated the Rochelle Rochelle movie poster down to, like, the tiniest details and put them up in New York City to see who noticed. And That was one of my favorite stories in the book, to be honest, because I I reread the book in anticipation of this, and... That was something I had forgotten about, and rereading that was like, oh, that is really just mm. because yeah. it's not something. Yeah, you're. It's not something that you would necessarily think of right off the bat. You have to be a pretty good fan to know about Rochelle, Rochelle, especially remember the movie poster, right? And just to put like just to put so much care and love into it, it really shows what this fandom is all about. That's right, and I can't remember how much I go into this in the book, but my favorite thing about that part, that story is I was just chasing all these little fan stories from the internet at that point, and um, I, I happened to have a call to interview Jay Shells, the our artist, yeah. and we were I called I we had a scheduled time and I called him and he was like I have to call you back in 15 minutes, but you're gonna love the reason why, and I was like cool. So he calls me back and he's like, you're not going to believe who I was just on the phone with. And I was like, I have no idea. And he's like, Rochelle, Rochelle. And I was like, what? <laughs> so at, coincidentally, at the same time that we happened to be having our scheduled phone call, he was like making this final deal because he had heard from Sheila's, Sheila Holton, who played Rochelle, Rochelle. She was an yeah. extra and a model. Um she, her husband had reached out and said, like, listen, you know, we want a copy of this poster. And like he had to, he was like, well, you have to prove it's it's really her. But if you prove it's really her, I'll, I'll make you like copies for free and send them <laughs> right. on my dime. And so he had just like he had just finally like gotten in touch with them and was like making the final arrangements to send her copies. Like he, her husband had tried to make like a bad copy. And it just never was the same. And like Jay was going to make them like a really nice copy that they could hang up in their house and have framed. Um, So like I kind of like outed Rochelle Rochelle, like no one else had ever known who this was before. And it was like the first time, like, so I got to talk to her too. And she's like the sweetest (laughs) person. And she like works as a a receptionist in a a motorcycle company. And it just, and and, like she had a, a, co-worker who was a huge Seinfeld fan and I was like does he know who you are and she's like no I haven't told him and I was like 
That's great. His mind's going to explode. Um, Yeah, so there's just so many fun. To me, that stuff was really fun. Yeah, I love that you started with the fans. And personally, I went into this book kind of being like, I know everything about Seinfeld. There might be one or two things that I'll learn. But for the most part, I'm kind of just reading it because I love Seinfeld. But it, it turned out every single chapter, there was something new, something fresh that I hadn't known before. So I just want to thank you so much for that. It was so, the entire read was so entertaining. I loved it so much. Thank you. That's so nice to hear. Cause like I said, my biggest fear really with this one in particular, I mean, any that I do, because of course we're writing books for, you know, people who are the most into it. And it's just really such a relief, especially on this one. Cause I was like, I'm like, the last thing I want to read in a bunch of interviews or reviews is like, why does this book exist? This is mm-hmm. nothing new. And I also read that, did you attend classes to prepare for this book? Yeah. um, Well, there were two, actually. That's right. So there's one at DePaul in Chicago um, where it was kind of more traditional, what you would think. Like, there really was kind of like essentially a a class on Seinfeld, the way you take a class on Shakespeare or something like that, um, where they really like watched episodes and analyzed them. And, um, you know, it was funny because a lot of that she was saying, like, what's sort of wild about it is that the kids who take it are, you know, they're kids, they're young. And so it's like a lot of them really do come in like with very, not that much knowledge of it, or they'll be like, Oh, we didn't ever know that. Like, I don't know, double dipping or something like that (laughs) is a phrase that came directly from Seinfeld. You know, they just Mm -hmm. thought it was like part of the language at this point, which I think is really funny. And then um, Rutgers, for a while, I'm not sure if they still do it, but they, I, this was my favorite. I love this so much. They have um, in the med school as part of the psych curriculum, um, there is a class where they diagnose Seinfeld characters and they, it's dead serious. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> they come in, like in their like doctor coats, you know, too, because that's just how they go to class. But like I right. attend the class and it's really funny because the best part about it is that I think it's really clever. It, it allows it to be really sort of spontaneous. So like he just says whatever. OK, on this date, you need to watch the rerun on of Seinfeld that's on TBS at whatever time. So he doesn't know what it's going to be. It's luck of the draw for him, too. He just assumes there will be at least one psychosis <laughs> in any given episode. And so they all watch this, whatever episode is up. And come in the next morning and he goes around like it's rounds. He just goes around the room and is like, what would you say? And they'd be like, well, the patient presents with this and this, you know, like <laughs> I would diagnose him as. And it is phenomenal. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Like, where was this? Where was this course when I was in college? man? I was like, going to say I would have went to the school. Be a doctor if, if this was if it was this much fun. But, yeah, it's he's the the doctor who taught it was just, a, you know, obviously a huge Seinfeld fan <laughs> and just was watching it one day and thought like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's true. Like who thinks like, honestly, who thinks that way of watching your favorite show? And all of a sudden you go, Oh man, I'm going to teach a class in, <laughs> in the psychological abnormalities based on Seinfeld. Yeah. And it did, but there's it, a lot of material there, so I can't blame them. And obviously it's a little bit of fun. They know that. And, you know, but it also like worked. Like I said, the cool thing, too, is that he didn't know. It's not like he said, watch season five, episode two, because that's where the one thing happens. It's like he, too, has to just watch whatever's on and be like, okay, 
this is what we're working with. So it, it gives them this feeling of almost like real, real spontaneity, like a, pa- like a patient. And I think it was yeah, really yeah. clever. Also, it got them some fun press. So <laughs> so I, I was fascinated with your stories about um, Jeremiah Bosgang and Rick Ludwin. Can yes. you talk a little bit about their impact on the early years of the show? Jeremiah Bosgang um, is the nicest man, first of all. Um, so he was the kind of like right-hand man to Rick Ludwin who um, was in charge of late night and specials at NBC at the time and was the one who recruited Seinfeld, which makes sense, right? He would, he honestly would just usually be watching the late night shows and see comedians on there. And this is especially in the eighties. Like I I love that this is just how it worked. It's like in the eighties, you go on one of these shows, you do your set. It's good enough. Rick Ludwin calls you up and is like, Hey, you have any ideas for a sitcom? You know? And (laughs) Jerry basically said that like, you know, he gets this call. He's like, I'm, you always take the meeting, you know, you go to the meeting. And so he went and he was like, no, I don't have any ideas, but, um, you know, so it was kind of one of those where they were like, listen, we like you. If you have ideas, um, let us know. And so then came the, you know, magical night with Larry David after they did their comedy together. And they kind of, as I was alluding to they were at a Korean deli making fun of stuff and kind of said this should be the show and so they were you know so his original point of contact was in fact Rick Ludwin and he kind of stayed with it and ends up being this great champion of the show like um you know they make the one pilot uh the Seinfeld Chronicles and um put it on famously like in the deep of July just the one by itself the day after 4th of July, you know, it's obviously not meant to be watched. Rick, Rick really liked it though. And he tried to argue for it. And this is when one of my favorite things in, in pop culture history happens, which is that his boss essentially says, if you can find it in your budget, you can make a couple more Seinfelds and we'll see what we do, what we can do. And he cuts a Bob Hope special which would be two hours. And I love the, the neat math of that. I'm sure this is not exactly the way these budgets really work, but essentially they get four half hour episodes of right. for, you know, instead of two hours of Bob Hope. So I always love thinking about how, when, how Bob Hope, whether he knows it or not, being <laughs> yeah. this was his really great contribution to, you know, comedy, right. Is that he actually had a, a knowing part in making Seinfeld. He made and, room for Seinfeld. That's that's right. Right, right. That was it's, his swan song. It's really <laughs> incredible. And I also love the idea of being the kind of person who doesn't even notice that they're like, oh, he he lost a whole like special and he didn't even notice that like yeah. <laughs> he wasn't going. Sure, whatever. There's three instead of four. Great, sure. Um, so that's you know, so that's really how Seinfeld happens and how it ends up kind of under Rick Ludwin's purview instead of the traditional the people who would be usually in charge of comedies and this really goes a long way because he gives them this chance and then one more chance kind of gets them to bring him bring them back for a full 12 episodes the next season and then finally that's when it becomes a hit and you know he didn't have the same ideas about what should be in sitcoms didn't fight them very much which was key for keeping Larry David even around at all and Jeremiah Bosgang was his kind of like right-hand man who was often on the set actually in those early days because like Rick couldn't be there all the time. So Jeremiah would go and like do 
the script notes and report back to Rick. And usually it was like, sure, great. Keep, keep going, do whatever, do whatever they want to do. There was like one time when they got pushed back from uh, Jeremiah and Rick, which was the Chinese restaurant. Mm. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that was just because it, it was really like, you can see it. It was, it was like a step oh, a little too far off of the like basic sitcom pre- premise, right? Like, they literally were like, we don't understand how we're going to promo this. Like, they go to a Chinese restaurant. They don't get a table. <laughs> like, that's a really weird, that's not the traditional, like, Lucy stomps some grapes at an Italian winery. Hijinks ensue, you know? Right. Like, know what to do. And so it was one time, and Larry threatened to walk if they pulled it. And they were like, no, 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 it's fine. And that's <laughs> basically how it happened. But... Rick's kind of real, like, hands-off approach turns out to be a huge key, and his support in the meantime, of course, turns out to be this huge key to how, you know, the show, it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have made it. There's all of those different chances. It, it absolutely should not have made it. So many things had to fall into place, and everything had to be just at the right place at the right time, and it is unbelievable. It's almost cosmic that the show just happened and became the success that it was because you think about it nowadays or even beforehand, even times before that, it it was just in that right sweet spot where things just came together and it's unbelievable to think about it. It's just strange. It just seems like these, there's like, there were two or three guys that just were like, all right, you just, I guess this is okay. We'll, we'll do this. Like they just kind of let them do the show they wanted to do. And like, no one really, said anything or it's hard to think of anything quite like it like there are certainly other flukes but i don't know just those like we just talked about like the number of chances and right and it's like it really takes until that set of 12 before it takes off and actually the chinese restaurant turns out to be pretty pivotal to that um because it gets the first kind of rapturous reviews from it's very critic friendly like it was because they executed the concept so well it's very you know it's a little bit high art like you know it's very waiting for no and and so the critics loved it and that is one of the first things that was kind of putting it on the map and, you know, and then they they really start to get going in that season. And that's when they're running after cheer, the cheers reruns in the summer. And, you know, it's like it starts to really kind of take off with that four and then the 12. And, I, you know, it's just hard to imagine. I don't understand how that could happen. We I don't even have an analog for how that would work now, except that maybe Netflix would give somebody a lot more chances than most shows get but really it it's so it like you said it feels almost cosmic like you know jerry said something once that i think i have at the very beginning of the book that's something to the effect of like you know seinfeld just became its own thing that i had to serve and (laughs) i get that like that's it's like seinfeldia wanted to exist you know and um at some point they were just kind of like serving the muse and giving us Seinfeld for as long as they could. And it really does feel preordained given what happened at NBC in that case. And going back to Jeremiah Bosgang for a second, um, I know he eventually left and decided he wanted to be a comedy writer slash actor. Uh, <laughs> but I love the story that he came back and auditioned for himself. Yeah. <laughs> 
the show and he didn't get the part. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's such a Seinfeldian thing to happen, I feel like. And can't you even imagine like a, a future episode where they, they write that in somehow to sort of get very meta. But yeah, he he like got, you know, he really it would have been really cool, I think, if he had been able to play himself. Um, yeah. But, you know, you got to I understand there's a lot of lot of great comedic actors out there. And so, yeah, when they have that whole plot line where which is was one of my first things that I remember truly remember at the time seeing and like going crazy for on that show is when they make the show with the sitcom within the show and cast uh-huh. all of the characters Brilliant. and that goes down to even you think those are just random executives, but the guy who's like the kind of one of the main executives really does look like Rick Ludwin. He's good looking, has like little wireframe glasses. And then the two. Oh yeah. Crespi. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So more like those, that little cadre that sits on the sofa a lot during the auditions and all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a guy who's like, sits next to the Rick Ludwin character and he has like dark hair is really good looking. And that's kind of like the boss gang um, stand in, by the way, just fun side fact is that when the reason I found Jeremiah boss gang is because I went to visit Rick Ludwin's archives. He has archives. And so I just was like going through all the old memos he had and stuff um, from the show for some research. And Jeremiah's name was just on everything. Cause he's the one who wrote them. And I just thought, like, what a great name. Yeah, and I, yeah. I'm actually surprised Larry didn't steal it, first of all, because it feels like one that Larry would like. Can't That's you hear him saying it out loud? Jeremiah Bosgang. Oh, right? <laughs> um, but I just thought, like, I kind of want to find that guy. And in some cases in this book throughout, like, there are times when I just loved someone's name so much and it sounded Seinfeldian. So I got, like, extra jazzed to find them. <laughs> And Jeremiah was one of them. And it, I'm so glad because it turned out he was really, really nice. And um, the electricity went out at my um, book launch party that he came to. And he actually helped us to get it turned back on. Um, like was going back there, you know, to the electric box and stuff. <laughs> Very dad-like. Um, but also he was just a great source for this because he was around for all that stuff. And, you know, I um, didn't get to talk to Rick. So like he was just such a great source for everything on this and remembered all of it it was so great yeah he was one of my favorite parts of the book for sure just because <laughs> yeah, it was so unexpected i was like well, who is who is this guy <laughs> yeah it's a great story like is that like it's such a great seinfeldian story to try to audition for yourself and not get it yeah <laughs> and another one of those guys early on like jeremiah and uh rick was tom Sharonis. I don't know yeah. if you had any anecdotes about him that you'd like to share. Uh, he um, was in, he had some good stuff in the book as well. Yes. Um, he is a really, he, he just had such a personality and it was sort of a surprise to me. Like how I just didn't know that much about him. So he's his own kind of storyteller. And, you know, he was the one who I like, I always remember him saying like, he got this script. He was like, I think he had done, you know, some other sort of pretty standard sitcoms before yeah, and he gets yeah. the script and he's like what the fuck is this you know like, <laughs> he, i just love that like someone along the way would admit to me because you know people want to be like i understood that this was high art and was very going to be very successful someday or whatever or you know some of them even said like i understood this was high art and i was sure it wasn't going to be successful because of it 
But Sharonis was the one guy who was like, I got this thing. And I was like, I don't know, no, 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 what the fuck they're trying to do here. But sure, <laughs> I'll take it. And exactly. he was was just like, and I think that that was so, it was important in a way, simply because like they needed people who were either totally into the spirit of it or just like, let's, he was very like, I don't really care. Let's just, let's just make this thing. Let's do this. Let's make the best of it. And of course he grew to really love the show, but he just was very, you know, like many people who first encountered it was just kind of like, this is not any, like anything that I've seen before anything that I've directed before. And he was very up for anything. Yeah. And I like how you describe his style of directing. I think they originally wanted to do a one camera show, but then they couldn't, but he kind of tried to make it that it was almost like that. It was almost right. like a one camera show. Exactly, exactly. And so they kind of really tried to do the spirit of it, which I think ends up being, I mean, you can't prove or disprove this, so I'll, I can just say it, but I believe it becomes it fairly influential because it's like a bridge to the time now when we have mostly single camera comedies, right? Yeah. And um, he really tried to get a lot of the spirit of what I think Larry wanted, which was a single camera show. And so they would shoot on locations. Um, I, you know, there were anecdotes about them even like, you know, I think it was the parking. I always get which one's called what, but the one where they're, they're stuck in the parking garage. I think mm-hmm. that's the, the parking one. garage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, there's also like the park, the, you know what I mean? There's a couple. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was the parking yeah. space. There's space. an alternate side. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So the parking garage, which is one of my favorites too, like where they'd even set up like little bleachers you know, to be in those outdoor-ish scenes. They'd like to have the audience a little bit. They might set up some bleachers and have them watching there instead. Um, or, you know, another thing you do in those cases is you can film on location and then show it to an audience and get the laughs that way. Um, but they really, he he was wanted to be more interesting than that, you know, kind of like those stuck cameras in the studio give you the impression of like the totally fake kitchen, you know, in the family in like, you know, one of those family sitcoms that like never moves and everything looks fake. And he really gave them more of that sense of movement, even though they were not in New York and, uh, you know, he was doing his best to kind of make it fun. And it's just one more way that they were sort of really out there on the leading edge. And also it was good to be kind of mostly left alone at the beginning by the network. Yeah, and he was also doing all that on a shoestring budget. In those early days, especially, Seinfeld didn't have this, you know, these millions of dollars or whatever. And, you know, Larry and Jerry famously just would write these episodes. They just wrote the ideas, whatever ideas they could write down in their head and not think about the logistics and just say, here, you know, here's the script. Go build it. And it's unbelievable. And, you know, not to take away from Andy Ackerman, because obviously he is his own brand of of great you know great directing but when he came on Seinfeld was already like making all this money and was able to do like like you see in the later seasons these big elaborate scenes and Tom Sharonis was able to do a lot with a little so exactly like I always think with Ackerman I I always think of him telling the story of like when they do the toothbrush scene in the toilet exactly (laughs) in the pothole always think of that for some reason but I I think it's so indicative of the Seinfeld style that had developed under Sharona's first is like you know that he he was like we have to have a shot from inside the toilet bowl up at Jerry's face looking 
which is kind of iconic when well, you don't realize it. But when, you know, when I heard that later, I was like, yeah, that is true. That like, I remember how striking that was. And, you know, that, but that is something, like you said, it's like, it, that's the kind of stuff that, that Tom sort of pioneered. And especially that feeling of like being several places and which gets more intense as the show goes on. Cause they cram more and more kind of action in. As oh, it, yeah. But that feeling of like, Maybe it got a little too much like this toward the end, arguably, but like that almost feeling of like it feels like a cartoon at times, you know, and not just because of Kramer. There's a whole there's a feeling of, of kind of all this kinetic energy, even though most of it is talking. There always it feels like there's so much movement. And that's, you know, Tom helped develop that. Yeah, I think Andy um, described in the last season, it was the, the budget was kind of endless. It could go, you know, there was no budget. And he kind of jokingly said, you know, maybe we'll have the elephant in this episode for the betrayal. And the next thing you know, there's like an elephant. <laughs> they have a oh, yeah. huge elephant. <laughs> Just for a second, though. It's only like that very quick scene. Yeah. <laughs> Which tells yep. you it's even crazier, honestly, because it's like they probably had to pay for a whole day of elephant. And it's just like they just have like one brief glimpse of it, you know? I mean, yeah. And they end up doing all that. It's like, you can argue whether it was worth it, but like Puerto Rican Day Parade type stuff, like those big city scenes and, you know, lots of extras, lots of all of that. And so, yeah, it just like it gets so crazy toward the end and all the big set pieces they would have and everything. Yeah. So you were lucky enough to interview one of the original writers, Peter Melman. What was it like talking to him and what were some of your favorite stories that you heard from him? Oh, I love him. Um, he's the best. Yeah, he was so great. And um, I have such like, I mean, he's like a legend, right? You know, he's, yeah. he's the guy. For I talk a lot in the book about kind of that otherwise, like they had so much churn, they would, you know, kind of use people up and spit them out each season. And everyone was happy to do it because they got Seinfeld on their resume. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Melvin was one of the, the people who was around for a while and really had that Seinfeld style down, which is incredible. And he's responsible for so many of those just, you know, double dipping and real inspector shrinkage. Like, I mean, like, it's just, there's so much, he did so many good ones that it's, it's truly crazy. And he is such a legend. Um, and I just loved talking to him about kind of the inspirations behind all of them. And, um, you know, I remember he was complaining about, he's like, I really thought anti-dentite was going to be bigger. Um, <laughs> you really like, like he had, he was so good at those catchphrases and he, there were times when he thought like, oh, that was, that, I think this one's going to be a big hit and then it wouldn't quite be, it'd be something else from that same episode would catch on instead. Um, that's the curse of having like too many too many good ones, you know. Um, I feel like Yada Yada, maybe it might be one of my favorites of his. Uh, and yeah, he just like he had so many of those great stories from behind the scenes. And I think it was him who also told me that um, the story about how they NBC once they once the show got big, like NBC was going to do one of those crossover episodes where it was like, oh, the power is going to be out in like. Oh, yeah going to be like mad about you in this and strangely enough it was like mad about you friends Seinfeld and man of the people um so there you go for your trev your uh your trivia you know you can remember that man of the people was part of the blackout of 
must-see TV. Um, but Seinfeld was already in the position where they were like, we're not going to do that. Like, we're not that kind of show. Like, we don't participate in things that friends participate in. And I think it was Pete who told me the story of how they were saying, like, but what if we did it and we killed Ross? <laughs> like Ross Geller is dead. Um, and I just thought that was like the perfect illustration of the relationship between Seinfeld and friends. <laughs> well, we could do an entire podcast about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just to go back to Peter Melman for a second, yeah. um, I wanted to talk about how he suggested a story in which uh, Elaine was exhausted by New York and wanted to leave, which would make Jerry confront any feelings he had for, for her. I just thought that was really interesting. Like, yes. how did that come about and how did they ultimately not go with that story and go yeah. with the other story? And that just shows you how long Pete was around, too. Right. Like that. That's pretty early to even yeah. be considering. That's that crazy. I'm so fascinated by this whole part of their of the show's life is that where they were kind of still flirting with like, maybe someone somewhere has feelings on the show. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. And they do that really crazy thing where it's like, they get, they like sort of get together in that one episode and then they just pretend it never happened forevermore. Like the show pretends it never happened. Um, and it, I think Peter was like both a little more interested in like the relationship aspects, if that was something they were interested in doing, like that's just something he I think is interested in. And also like, he was really good at Elaine, um, you know, yeah. sponge worthy among others. And like, I noticed when I was looking over the ones he was a part of, like that he really did um, that he had a lot of Elaine and he said he actually really liked writing for her, which was not something all of them said. Um, but he actually had this real affinity for her and, but yeah, they just clear, they decided like, you know, as we saw that they're really not going to do this sitcom feelings thing <laughs> at all, which I'm kind of glad about. Cause I don't know, I get a little creeped out. It's probably cause I, I know the whole history now that like, if I go back and see that one episode where they sort of like consider being together, I'm just like, it was stop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's too much. And right. even that episode that they have, it gets to be to that level where it's just like, oh, no, don't, don't. Yeah. Like, I don't want to see a late, I don't know. I just don't want to see any of that. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see either of them have feelings. And like, there's, can you imagine, like, there's a whole alternate universe where like the finale is that, you know, Jerry and Elaine finally get married or something. Like, it's just oh, chill yeah. chilling to think about. No, Elaine is supposed to be with Putty, and Jerry is supposed to break up with a girl every week. Right, exactly. That is, and aren't we glad that was so much more fruitful? Yeah, I love how they poked fun at, at all the rumors in the finale, mm -hmm. like about Jerry and Elaine getting together, them doing the pilot, them moving to California. You know, they kind of tease all that stuff, but none of that happens. Yes, um, yeah. I love that scene. I love the uh, the almost plane crash. Yeah, well, that was another rumor, too, that they were all going to die. And then, of course, that didn't happen. That but. didn't happen. That didn't happen, though. I will tell you, because I, you know, I have I have an my my like conspiracy theory of the finale is that they are all dead. It's like lost. <laughs> it's like, oh, like they died on the plane. And then everything that comes after is purgatory, which would actually make total sense. Just say. Wow. Just Does make sense. It's actually gotta, lost. I'm telling you. Now you got to write that book. 
right? It's <laughs> it's like because then they bring bring all the witnesses up to like review the mistakes of their life before they are judged, and then they are judged and they are judged to all have to stay in that cell together forever. There you go. I just blew your minds. Love it. <laughs> it really did. So we talked about Peter Melman a little bit. Um, you were able to talk to some of the other writers, David Mandel, Jeff Schaefer, a bunch of guys. Yeah. Um, can you tell us some of your favorite stories from each one that they gave in the book? Yeah. I mean, Dave Mandel is is like a genius, too, which he is like proven now with being a showrunner on Veep, uh, yeah. among other things. He is just so it's like fascinating all of the places that some of, you know, these people have gone. They've basically they've staffed like half of HBO's brilliant comedies which i think is very interesting that they all went ended up at hbo after yeah. larry with curb your enthusiasm because that really is where they sort of belong is in this sort of forward thinking cable type world um but yeah dave i mean i loved that whole um sort of next generation that's what i think of it as like seinfeld the next generation those last couple seasons after um Jer or after Larry leaves and they have to like make up for that, which he was doing so much of the work. So they hire a bunch of like younger, mostly guys. It's fascinating to me because they all come with this different sensibility of like having watched the show for a couple years and then getting out of like the Harvard Crimson or whatever, and then being asked to write for it. And it's like the writing is fans, um, you know, like Dave had to, Dave moved to LA and like had to figure out how to like get to the studio on his first day at Seinfeld, which is like kind of mind blowing to think of like you move to Los Angeles and then or directly go to your job at Seinfeld as like <laughs> a comedy writer, you know? Um, and he wrote like man hands, which he, I always think of because he, <laughs> lovingly says that it is about his wife um <laughs> <Farmans. laughs> um but he also like did the bizarro which i think is a fast yeah. one um and it really gives you this early window i think into like his comedy brain that you then see in places like veep another one of my favorites was is the andy robbins story um the doctor, the eventual doctor. Yes. Um, who wrote the junior mint. That is truly one of my favorite stories from that book. Um, and and he practices in my home state. So that's the great, like when you said, <laughs> he's <laughs> when I, I reread that, I was like, holy crap. Wait a minute. Wait. <laughs> I love that. Um, and he, so he like, you know, was, had sort of a similar situation. He was coming in, having watched the show and was like super intimidated ends up, you know, kind of nervously, like, because, you know, there's a lot of pressure, and it's like, they're just grasping at anything, like, I don't know, maybe this phone is a story, you know, like, they yeah. just, like, do anything, because they're trying to get on, and they're trying to pitch Larry and Jerry, and so he sort of comes up with this, this crazy Junior Mint idea, and pitches it only in desperation, he's like, this is a stupid idea, but here it is, you know, kind of thing, and Larry loves it and, you know, is like, write it. And Andy's basically like, no, it's stupid. I won't write it. And Larry's like, you're going to write it. And so he finally does and feel like was sure he had ruined the show. Like he was like, I've single handedly ruined my favorite television show by writing this terrible, you know, stupid thing about a junior mint falling into a body. Like it makes no sense. And 
Um, and in fact, I believe when he was telling me the story specifics, he said like, I've written this unsanitary doctor story, you know, it's like <laughs> crazy situation. And it turns into like one of the big moments for the show. I mean, it's, it's iconic and it's another one of their kind of moments of like the, the real feeling of like the nation is talking about this, you know? And um, he still never, like he never truly has been sold on the idea of this episode to this day. And, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that sort of ensues in the meantime. Like he ends up basically, he quits the show in distress um, over <laughs> this episode. I mean, he writes some more, but is still like, I can't do this. And then he came back with his writing partner, Jeff Schaefer later, but um, not yeah. Jeff Schaefer. Sorry, that's, no, that's no, uh, Greg, Greg, uh, Greg Cavett. Yes, thank you, Greg Cavett. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he brings, he comes back with the partner thinking like, this will help, which it did. I think it's very funny that the punchline to this real life story is that this man became a doctor. Like he right. quit comedy <laughs> writing, went to med school. And the guy who wrote the story about the junior mint falling into a body <laughs> in surgery was so scarred that he left the business and became a doctor to atone for his sins. <laughs> in this episode, this classic episode. But I think that episode's brilliant and um, is often cited as, you know, kind of another turning point for the show where it gets even sort of darker and unapologetic. Like that's the old, uh, you know, let's go watch them slice this fat bastard up live. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like you can see on his face that he's like, I'm going to say this on network television and you're not going to stop me. And, you know, um, but I just love that, that Andy was just that traumatized. Also just like, can you imagine being like a person who can be either a comedy writer on Seinfeld or a doctor? Like, I don't know what genetic makeup gets you that, but congratulations <laughs> to him. You have to be really smart to be either <laughs> one. I mean, right? And totally different kinds of smart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just wild. Can you imagine, like, you go to the doctor and your doctor's like, well, I used to write for Seinfeld. And you're like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And he's like, no, 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 I wrote the Junior Minute episode. Like, what? not sure how I'd feel at that point. I'd be like, do I really want this man treating me now? Do I, <laughs> I think he doesn't bring it up, but he doesn't have to bring it up. Yeah, it just seemed like, um, for the writers, it was a little intimidating pitching stories to Larry and Jerry. Uh, we had Fred Stoller on. I know he was in your book as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we felt for him a little bit. He he seemed like he really struggled with the writing on the show. It, we were happy for him that he was able to come back and act on the show because right. he definitely felt fulfilled after that. But, um, yeah, it just seemed like it was really intimidating to pitch ideas to Larry and Jerry unless you knew them really well. It really was. And I was so grateful to him. He was like another one like Jeremiah Bosgang that filled this really wonderful void for me. And Sharonis, too, like where he was the person who was willing to say oh yeah, that was terrible. Like no one else wants yeah. to yeah. say that was the worst year of my life. But <laughs> I feel like it's on brand for Fred in a way. <laughs> that was the worst year of my life. And also because like you said, I mean, I think it's important that for him, it turned out to just be, it wasn't his calling. It wasn't the right thing for him to be writing. He should be acting. Um, and he was so successful as a character actor that he can now kind of say, like, it's fine. I'm not going to write for sitcoms. This was not a great experience. But I was so grateful to him because he really gave me a sense of that particular experience that I guarantee other people had on that show. Because, like I said, they would go, they would sort of cycle through. It would be like they'd hire a 
mostly stand-ups to kind of use up their material essentially, right? They're using up their real life experiences that they bring to the character of Jerry as a stand-up. You know, Fred also famously gave us the soup episode, right? The Oh yeah. Soup is he not gave a us banya. Right. right. So and that was a like from his own life. So it's like even though he was sort of this quote unquote failure that he felt like on the show, he still gave us one of the great moments of it and comes back to um, act on the show as a character actor later. So it works out okay. But I loved hearing his experiences because he was so honest. Yeah. And he's such a treasure trove of great stories when (laughs) when we interviewed him and he tells them in such a way. It's so funny. Mm hmm. He really it's it. I mean, I understand how like maybe just script structure isn't for everyone, but he definitely has like a voice and he is very funny and yeah. has has his own character and persona. Um, so before the book, did you ever visit any of the Seinfeld sites like Tom's Restaurant or do the Kenny Kramer tour or anything sure. like that? If the soup I stand? did. Before I definitely have been to the soup stand, but that was that's like an it was it was so it was like a block from uh, the office that we were in at Entertainment Weekly when I worked there, so I had literally just had lunch there, and of course everyone knew what that was in the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess I had not. I may have. I think I had been to Tom's Diner, but um, I did do Kenny's tour specifically for the book, and I actually did it pretty late. And I only, I remember that just because I remember thinking like, I'm going to hate this. Like, I'm going to go on this tour and like, I'm so, I'm a year into the research for this book. Like, it's going to be so boring. And then it was so amazing. Like, I'm such a fan. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever done it. But, yeah, we have. <laughs> okay. I'm, like, it's just because, and it's so interesting, just like everyone else involved with Seinfeld. It's like, just because this guy is so much of this guy. I mean, I don't know if he did this when you guys were doing it, but there was a whole bit that went on in any other world for way too long where he shows you all his merchandise one by one that he has for sale. And oh, yeah. Like, my God, yeah, did something like that. Right? Yeah. Is he really going to do this? And then it turns out to be incredibly entertaining. And I was like, fine, great, do it. I, you know, I, knock <laughs> yourself out. Because, like, he's just so fun that it just doesn't <laughs> matter. And he's always like that. It's so fascinating that a person i mean i guess that's how you get an iconic character named after you on television but i and i guess to impress you know larry david with your character must be something but yeah and i love hearing all those early stories about you know larry sharing a car and a pair of pants with with penny and that that, that was so great and you know they and they had the same relationship as jerry and kramer you know they just crossed the hall from each other except I don't think Jerry ever went to Kramer's apartment, but that's the only difference, but yeah, pretty much, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and I really do feel like when people ask me about this, I'm always like, yeah, I mean, Kenny kind of really is pretty Kramery. Like they're pretty similar. I mean, there's differences, but you know, Kenny is such a man about town. It's like, um, you know, I have a great story about Kenny at my, at my, the same book party where Boz Gang had to fix the electricity. It was a crazy party. Um, it was at a bookstore in Brooklyn. And it's it's called Word. And it has, like, book events happen in the basement, okay? So there's stairs coming down, and then you're downstairs kind of, like, away from the book buyers in the basement. 
And we finally got the electricity back up. It's like the dead of summer and it's super hot without the electricity because there's no air. Um, so we finally get that going. And then I finally start and like my deal is I'll like show some clips and tell stories about them. So I'm about to show the clip of the bus tour, the Kramer bus reality bus tour. And I'm telling the story of Kenny Kramer and how he had a bus tour and that is what this is based on. And he was this basis for the character. And as I'm doing this, I mean, it's dead quiet downstairs. Everyone's listening. And then I hear someone creak, 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 creak down the stairs. And I'm really honestly thinking like, who is this jerk who is coming to my party like an hour late and making a big ruckus? I am not kidding you. It is Kenny Kramer walking in as I am talking about him. And he did not tell me he was coming. <laughs> so this is not a timed bit. This is Beetlejuice. This is like as if when you say his name aloud in the yeah. dark area, he appears. Right. And it's, it's impo- like, I feel like I'm always telling people like, you don't understand. We really didn't plan that. And then he just, I'm like, ladies and gentlemen, Kenny Kramer, he just starts telling stories. That's amazing. He's brought CDs with him. He'll sign them. He'll sign your book. Great. This is all great. And then afterwards he pulls me aside and he's like, we can do that again and we can pretend it, it happened that way every time. Like, <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, we could do that again, but this time it could be planned. And I was like, and he actually did do it a few more times. He did make surprise appearances at various of my events afterwards. So that's very Kramer right there. The, Kramer. The, hey, but by, by the way, we can do this multiple times. You know? I, I, I won't say a word. This person here is like, Hey kid, you know, <laughs> <laughs> watch out boy. <laughs> And also yeah, the pop, um, and also the pop in. Yeah. Pop in, it's completely that. Like he just, he's a special, special man. So then there's, so there's Kenny Kramer, and then on the other side of that is Michael Richards. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about his acting techniques? I know he was very intense. Very intense. There's always one. That's what I always say. There's you always get like <laughs> one on on these classic sitcoms. There's always somebody who's like method, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was really intense and, um, just did not, the particular thing is like, and you can find actual like quote blooper reels, though he's not particularly amused in them online of him being like very annoyed when people broke. Oh yeah. Um, which you can imagine, like the, can you imagine like being opposite him and you're not supposed to laugh ever? You know, like, how could you, and because, like, he often also did things they didn't expect, and then it's like, they're supposed to not laugh and stay in character, it's really hard, but he was just very intense about it, really wanted to stay in character, you know, wore, would often, like, wear particularly Kramer's shoes, but kind of relied on some costuming to kind of really get into character, would stay off to the side often and stay in character while everyone else would, like, socialize, because it seems like overall it was just a really nice group of people. Um, and I don't mean to contrast that with him necessarily. I'm just saying like they were friendly, <laughs> happy people, unlike their <laughs> malcontent characters. And, right. <laughs> he really like kind of wanted to stay out of that friendly, you know, bantery frame of mind and really stay in the frame of Kramer. And, you know, it like the results speak for themselves though they're pretty good mm-hmm. oh absolutely yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you had to interview one of the main four who would it be and why um 
I mean, I have interviewed Julia, though I would always want more time with her because it was magical. Um, she's very like, she's one of those, I mean, she's exactly the opposite of her character in any character she plays. So she's just like extremely like nice and good and sweet. And I think that this is why she can play terrible people because like <laughs> somehow the sweetness like makes you, draws you in anyway. Um, and I am, I feel like Jason Alexander is similar and I think he'd be fun to talk to you about it um, because he, everything I've seen of him, he's a total mensch. And <laughs> I also love how he's very opposite. Like most other sitcoms, I feel like, like on friends, like they all say they're not like that in real life, but they're pro they're basically like their characters. You know what I mean? Right, right. Whereas yeah. one where really like, if you think of Jason Alexander before and even since, like he's he's a song and dance man, you know. He's like yeah, on, a, he's a theater on, kid, yeah. Like he's this happy-go-lucky guy, and I've always heard really good things about him. But then he has to play like one of the darkest <laughs> characters ever to be on a sitcom, right? Who like <laughs> Beyonce with blue envelopes and shrugs. Um, you know, it's just, it's, I, I think that they are, they seem like such a fun bunch and most of them seems like, you know, Jerry's obviously playing himself, but yeah. in other cases, like they're, they're sort of playing against type to a large extent. And I heard very good things about, you know, they're, everybody's kind of working relationships besides, you know, Michael being a little bit standoffish. I'm just curious, where did you interview Julia? I would love to check that out. Uh, Entertainment Weekly. It was during the era of um, New Adventures of Old Christine, the wildly underrated. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a throwback. Yeah. And um, really good. Like, it's just like a traditional sitcom, but like way better than it should be. Um, and yes, she was very sweet and um, made me share her turkey sandwich with her. That is <laughs> Little intimate detail from that is like, and I can just remember it's one of the few I actually like mostly would be pretty chill in my interviews, but I remember being like, I just wanted her to like me so bad. So I kept having that feeling of like wanting to like say something smart and funny to her all the time. And then I was like, I should just shut up and eat this turkey sandwich and let her talk. So um, she was really lovely though. And I just think it's like proof of how everything she does. I think she's like a true national treasure. I think she- oh, yeah. Probably not underrated at this point with all the Emmys she's won, but like, whoa, she's mm -hmm. just, I think she might be like the funniest working actor we have right now. She's certainly up there. Um, was there anybody that you wanted to interview that you couldn't or that refused or? Nothing. No one besides like the majors. Everybody else was, was really fun to talk to. And I think that like, especially the writers and you know, all those people from like, essentially, I don't want to say the sidelines, that's not even right. Like the soup Nazi is one of the reasons. <laughs> right. right. But um, I find with interviews that like, it, those are the people like, that's where all the gold is, because they haven't been talked to 3 billion times. And, right. um, you know, especially I remember the writers saying to me, like, no one, ever, no one ever talks to us, which I know is not strictly true. I know they all get interviewed, but I kind of know what they mean, too, that, like, people go to the, like, main four all the time, and that's fine, and that's great, and it makes total sense. But, like, there's all these people who especially wrote these iconic moments, and, you know, they have stories to tell. That's why I was, I mean, 
my big, I think my big scoop of um, the entire book is the Elaine dance. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that was huge. That's yeah. a bit. Yeah, that is huge. I like mean, that. That Lauren Michaels was the was the <laughs> model for that, and like got the whole story um, from Spike Ferriston. Like, I got to tell you, that was one of my moments where like. I was, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you don't need to act cool when you get a scoop. Maybe you can just say it right on the phone. But I was trying to be like cool about it. And Spike was like, I asked, I just brought up, like I would be, I was actually just going through episodes. You know, this is what I do with them. I'd be like, and what about, you know, this one? What about that one? Yeah, and kind yeah. of just, do you have any cool stories or whatever? And, or what was the, the inspiration? And I brought that one up and he goes, what do you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking about this the same way I asked about all of them. I mean, I don't know anything. He's like, and then he goes, it's time someone knew. And I was like, trying to be cool. Wow. <laughs> and then that story is just so great. Like the imagery of imagining Lauren Michaels at the SNL after party with Sinead O'Connor doing yeah. that dance is just some, it's like a really special moment. I think that when I'm dying, that will flash before my eyes and <laughs> the highlights of my life. That's amazing. Um, another great story was um, Lawrence Tierney in the jacket. I know he was cast members were like scared of him on set. Uh, I just love the story with his daughter. That, that was great stuff. Yes. I like that one was another. I felt like there were these little pockets. It, it's funny how this happened, but I felt like there were certain episodes that were just little, little like bombs waiting to explode. It's like they'd have multiple layers of like mm -hmm. cool little Seinfeldian stories. So it's like Lawrence Tierney being a, like terrifying and like drawing. <laughs> I was going to say pulling a knife on people. That sounds worse than it. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it sounds worse than it is. It was, it was somewhere in between, but like it wasn't a knife from the set. It was just the kitchen knife, but still terrified everyone so much that they never had Elaine's dad come back. And that was such a bummer to me because that character who is based on Richard Gates, the yeah. novelist, um, was so great. I just thought that that contrast of this like hyper masculine old man and these guys who are like, you know, you can who write a whole essay about it, right? These kind of like 90s new masculinity guys who are like, we'll have a Diet Coke. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he's like, I'm getting a whiskey. Yeah. I, so you he, like ice. <laughs> well, I like it. All of that. And he's so offended. Like, it has to be that guy. That's the only guy who would be so offended by the pink and white stripes inside. Larry's jacket or Jerry's jacket when he turns it inside out to avoid the rain, right? It's just the perfect combination of things. But I love that he was terrifying in real life because that's just great. And that Richard Yates knew it was based on him and like watched it with all of his students to see how it was portrayed <laughs> as his daughter dated Larry David for a while. Like that is all so mind boggling that this man who wrote Revolutionary Road would like be also portrayed on Seinfeld and then would care how he was portrayed is just so much fun. What would you say are some of the best written episodes of Seinfeld? I mean, my immediate reaction is like, I think the contest is perfect. Mm -hmm. Like I just, it's airtight. It's like the only one where like their plot lines are intertwined and really intertwined, right? They're all on one plot line, really, because it's this contest. 
but they still do the Seinfeldian thing of like total surprise as to how they all come together mm-hmm. with JFK Jr. and the, the Virgin in particular. Um, and just like all the little bits of that whole, right? The thing where like they show them all in bed at yeah. night, like whoever's sleeping is out of the contest. It's like, I love, I think the way that like, we'll never see, probably see anything quite like that again, because network TV isn't what it used to be. And so the the combination of kind of the network sensors and this edgy show, like now you would just put the show on a streaming service and say whatever you want. Right, but right. it's because they don't want to say masturbation, it's because it's all implication that it's good. I don't want to watch a show where they keep talking out loud about masturbation. It's totally gross and different. This was all these little like cute things that they did, you know? Um, so giving us all that master of your, my domain type stuff and giving us, you know, it's classic Seinfeld to do kind of a sex story in this particular way of like giving us new ways of talking about it in polite company and, you know, giving us little catchphrases and little winks. Um, they did a lot of that. They did, they did many of those, you know, sponge worthy is another really good example of that. Um, my, the one that I always say is my favorite, which also has to, a lot to do with writing, is um, the marine biologist. Mm. Oh, yeah. Right? Because it was the first time I was aware of them doing that big Seinfeld trick of, like, really two plot lines that should not come together at the end. When, <laughs> you know, when in the middle of the the sea was angry that day, my friends, you know, scene, we get... The Kramer revelation, you know, is it a t- was it a Titleist? It was his golf ball in a hole in one, huh? <laughs> um, and to me, like, I actually have a memory of watching that as a kid and getting it, and being like, and having this like higher level realization of like, not necessarily I shall write a book about that show someday, but at least like, wow, I get what they're doing. I'm interested in that in a way that's kind of different. You know, I'm like a nerd about this. Like, I'm interested in the comedy writing principles behind that um also just i actually think that that speech is beautiful (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's poetry it's and jason alexander is doing something so special there yeah i love how serious he is in the scene that makes it so much funnier exactly like i always say that the reason that that character works so well is that jason alexander is playing him totally straight at all times he takes George Costanza, it, as seriously as like Tony Soprano. Mm-hmm. That is how he is working that. He's never like, look at this joke. Like he he is totally committed to the drama of George. And that is why it's so funny. <laughs> Speaking of Tony Soprano, uh, would you say that Seinfeld in any way paved the way for shows like The Sopranos? I know it's a comedy, but they were, I would consider them maybe the first anti-heroes. Definitely. Absolutely. I say this all the time. Um, you know, it's, I completely think that, and it's only cause they tricked everyone. Mm-hmm. It, like first the network executives, like they, the, the network executives had to be tricked first. I mean, maybe Rick Ludwin knew the whole time. Um, but that's the twist. <laughs> so um, you know what I mean though? Like that, that like they kind of had to lull us into, I don't think we all sat there every week being like, Oh yeah, I'm going to watch these terrible people. Right. Um, we just got lulled into how funny they were and then we loved them and it, they did sneak up with it. It isn't until they, you know, have things like let's go s- watch them slice this fat bastard up. <laughs> they get bolder with the stuff as it goes on until we get to something like killing Susan. 
when the jig is a little bit up and then we all push it to the back of our head, right? We come back for a new season. We pretend that didn't happen. We're like, no, 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 it's fine that they killed her. <laughs> it's okay. Larry David is gone now. And then they hit us with that finale where they remind us again, like, these are terrible people. But I do think it made it so that we suddenly realized, like, that old network idea, which had been there since the dawn of television, and it's not crazy. It's not a crazy idea they had that people might want to watch nice people. Yeah, as an escape. Right, right. (laughs) But it really turned out after that, they couldn't make that argument anymore that, like, no, 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 you have to have, like... I always call it the Kermit the Frog character that you have to have like one character at the center who's like good and relatable and moral and you know is going to be okay, you know, is going to do the right thing in the end. And that's Seinfeld said absolutely not. Like Jerry, by all rights, should be that character in this. <laughs> and he is not. So, <laughs> no. You know, I mean, and I think we didn't notice till it was too late. And then next thing you know, we got Tony Soprano on the air. And I love how uh, David Chase said once that they probably should have swapped finales. I totally correct. <laughs> and I, I think that's, I mean, I love the Seinfeld finale personally. Oh, I know it gets too. a lot yeah. of hate, but that statement was so true. I mean, I could totally see Seinfeld doing that finale, just going to black and done. That's it. I, I think it, it, like, I wouldn't, I don't think I ever heard that they discussed that, especially, that specifically, but they certainly discussed things like, what if it's just a normal episode? Yeah. Which is kind of the sitcom equivalent of that, right? That it's like, that's kind of how that si- that uh, Sopranos finale is, is just kind of like, and then they did some more stuff and went to the Italian restaurant, yeah, um, right? And I love that. And I love, like, I mean, I think I may have written this before somewhere that, you know, I, I think if you describe, if you give us the log line for the Sopranos, it, do- it sounds like it could be a Seinfeld episode, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you know, uh, Mob Guy goes to the shrink. Like, that's pretty, you yeah. know, show it a different way. And it's, it's like, could be written by the same people. I can see that as the H, as an HBO comedy written by these guys. So it's, they have really, I mean, they, they come, you know, Sopranos comes right after Seinfeld's off the air. And I think that they actually have a lot in common, just the same way, strangely enough, that I think even like Seinfeld and Sex and the City does too. Like, I even saw that in early reviews of Sex and the City, that they would actually compare it, like the the over analysis kind of um, conversation and the way that they would give like give us catchphrases for mostly sex stuff and Sex and the City for sure, but kind of that that you know modelizer or give us giving us those sorts of things that they would have said in a different context on Seinfeld. There's like a lot of kind of overlap between those H- early HBO shows and. Seinfeld, interestingly enough, given that Larry then went right over there and made Curb. Yeah. So this is kind of a fanboy question, but um, have you ever thought of or would you ever consider making Seinfeldia into a movie? I would love that. I actually was just thinking about this recently for just various bizarre reasons again. But like just I had heard of like some other book kind of like, you know, getting the documentary treatment. And I actually think it'd be a good documentary. So if someone out there wants to make, I feel like it should, it has to be a documentary. Um, yeah. I do not want to see the like weird, like lifetime or E reenactment where they like, you know, cast someone to play Jerry Seinfeld. That's just too <laughs> creepy. Um, but you know, the, like they did with like full house and stuff. 
but I think it would be a really fun documentary and talking to people like the, all the ones we've been talking about tonight, Soup Nazi, you know, um, Kenny, all, all the, all the folks that come out to the Brooklyn Cyclones games and make them what they are. There's so many characters in Seinfeldia that I think, um, would make for a great one. So if anyone would like to, you know, do that, I would be very into it. We need to start a GoFundMe. I was going to say, we'll do everything we can on our end to get that going. I would, I would love to see that happen. And I, you know, there's all these documentaries on Netflix now, or when Seinfeld comes on Netflix, they could also have, right. It would be very good synergy. That's all I'm saying. And before we go, I just wanted to ask you, like, what have you learned from the Seinfeld fandom since this book came out? The main thing is, and it's it seems weird because I obviously chose to write a book about Seinfeld, but like I still don't think I fully understood the power until the book actually came out. Like obviously we went, you know, we did it because we're like, oh, people will buy this and people are into Seinfeld. But it's still hard to fully understand the force of the, the fandom until you're inside of it. And that is the part that just is, it's like, obviously I wrote a huge part of this about how incredible the fandom is. And I still didn't get it really until I spent years, you know, kind of, like you said, being part of it instead of just like an observer of it. And it's really amazing to me, just sort of like the pull of certain shows, movies, whatever on people. And I I find it, it's sort of like fast. It's a fascinating little part of humanity. I'm very interested in fandom in general. I think it's a fascinating thing in the ways that it bonds people and the ways that like, I think it, it you know, Seinfeldians have their own shared language among other things. And it's like the way you can just say to somebody, not that there's anything wrong with that or some better one than that. Like, These you know, pretzels are making me thirsty. That's a, good one. That's a better one. Cause I, <laughs> it's, a, it's like everyone knows, like you don't even have to watch Seinfeld to know not that there's anything wrong with that. But like, we, especially if you can go deep cuts or whatever. And the, like, you get that instant feeling of like recognition from a stranger who's like, Oh yeah, that, you know, like I got it. Or they like say something back. Um, I just think like, that's so fascinating and to see the ongoing power like it's already five years since this book came out so like things have continued to happen in that time and Seinfeld 2000 is still going for instance which I'm fascinated by or you know any number they kept doing those Brooklyn Cyclones nights which were supposed to be a one-time thing there's just so many fascinating little corners of this and hopefully there will it will grow even more in real life once people are allowed to be back together but we still have Seinfeld regardless yeah exactly and it's so wonderful that there's so many people like Larry Thomas and you know Tom Sharonas and all these and people that we've interviewed that you know maybe were on the show one time that played one of Jerry's girlfriends and they're so willing and so excited to come out and tell their story every time it doesn't matter how many times they've they've said it. it doesn't matter how many times they've heard the line they're always having fun and what other show you know this is rhetorical but like what other show you know can you even think of where there's the you know that level of enthusiasm from somebody that was just on the show one time you know even if they weren't a necessarily quote-unquote iconic character but i always feel that no matter who you are no matter what part you played you were a major part of seinfeld 
I think that's true. And it's even something that Larry said about that finale that so many people don't like is that a huge impetus for it was simply working backwards from the idea of how could we get all these characters to come back so we can remember them and say thank you because we understand that we're nowhere without that one girlfriend or, you know, definitely the soup Nazi. Yeah. Well, the pharmacist them. who sold Elaine the sponges. Like. That's right. That's right. It's like, and every one of those characters, part of the beauty of, of Seinfeld is the way that they would write those even one-time characters to be so big that, that, that they could become this, right? They could have just had some guys selling soup. But yeah. it's like, that's they always gave those people this whole, this feeling that they were on their own sitcom. That's how I think of it, is like, you go to the dry cleaner and this, you only see this guy once, but you're like, that guy's in his own sitcom, isn't he? Right. <laughs> yeah. His own whole like crazy family life back home, you know? Um, they always feel like they had a whole world around them. And that was the part that very New York, even though they never were in New York, that's what I think made it feel the most New York was those characters. And they knew the importance of them. And I think what's funny about Seinfeld and all the people who worked on it is like, we were talking about how terrible the, the main characters were, but like, I, like I said, everyone who ever came in contact with the show seems so charmed by it. And like, they're really good people. And they all say nice things about the other people who they worked with on it. Like, it was a really good atmosphere to make this, these miserable people come to life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I obviously Larry and Jerry have, have a significant dark side, but um, it seems as if you know, and certainly they were difficult, you know, it's like Fred had a hard time, like they were, they were hard to approach, like there were definitely troubles, but it wasn't, it's not like, you know, I think at the, at the core, people had a really good time there and genuinely look back on it with affection. And it's so funny that such a like sort of soft, cheesy concept of like, we just wanted to get the whole bank, gang back together. And the result is that we put our main characters on trial for being the worst people, worst examples of humanity ever. And here's your finale. Enjoy, you know, right. um, very, very sort of Larry David situation there. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Um, sure. We really, really appreciate it. Any Seinfeld fan out there who hasn't read Seinfeldia, you're really missing out. It's a must read for any Seinfeld fan, um, no matter how big of a fan you are there is stuff in there that you won't know and it's so interesting and um, it's just a great read and we loved it so much. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's so much we didn't cover in this interview that you're just going to love discovering when you read this book. It, and it's an, it's a great read. It has a great um, progression, a great narrative to it. Like the way that you were able to write the stories and put them together. It was, it was, it's just incredible. It was such, you know, going back to read, it was such a quick read. Like I didn't want to put it down. Thank you very much. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, we yeah. could have kept you for three more hours, but we, <laughs> yeah. we don't want to bother you. you we kept you long the, enough. You gotta buy the book. That's it. Gotta sign <laughs> off the rest there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. We really appreciate it. Sure. Yes, thank thank you. you so much. All right. Have a have a great have night. Great. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our interview with Jennifer Armstrong. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at theplacetobeseinfeld at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Place to Be, a Seinfeld podcast, Twitter at TPTB Seinfeld, and Instagram at theplacetobe.podcast. You can find our show on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like, please rate and review us. It really helps us out. Until next time, make sure to hang up your pants for the perfect crease.
I'm going to read a book from beginning to end in that order. I've always wanted to do that. 